Hi, Jan. Hi, Serge. So you just wrote a book about trauma and addiction from a polyvagal perspective. I certainly did. <laughs> lots of work, lots and lots of intense work over the last uh, two years or so. But yeah. it gave me a real um, project to focus on during COVID. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And so many people have been using a polyvagal perspective in dealing with trauma. Mm -hmm. But to my knowledge, that is something that hasn't been done in terms of addiction. And so uh, in your book and your approach is to think of uh, addiction within the perspective of trauma and also describe how you apply a polyvagal perspective to it. Yes. So, you know, I think... The way that I really got into this was at the very beginning of my practice over just over 40 years ago. And I worked with a group of young women who were incest survivors. We were a program at a hospital that had this uh, treatment and I just ended up getting a job there and I started into this. And what I realized uh, in listening freshly without um, any kind of DSM lens or any lens, really. I just let myself hear what was happening for these women. And what they taught me, really, was that what I came to um, was that addictions are really, addictive behaviors are like propellers that shift us in our bodies from uh, within this autonomic nervous system, from a kind of sympathetic, anxious flight, fight, or angry response to a, a numbing, shut down dorsal response, or vice versa. And the way I got to that was because they kept telling me about all of these things that they were doing to themselves that hurt them, but it also helped them. And I got really curious about that paradox and then later discovered to my delight that in my model, I've really integrated Gendlin and Porges work with a feminist and trauma informed framework as the basis. And both Gendlin and Porges talk about paradox, which is really interesting because paradox is the place where you can really think freshly and experience freshly. So as we stayed with these experiences that these young women were having, I started hunting around. And in fact, early on, feminist therapists, um, you know, Judy Herman's work, and then later, um, and, and The Courage to Heal, Laura Bass, and um, Laura Davis, and Ellen Bass, they saw these shifts in the body, you could physically see the shifts in the body, as they described how they would go from feeling so overwhelmed, with panic and anxiety and rage and terror, as you can imagine, right? These things are happening to these women that are unspeakable. And then they would describe to me how they would cut their bodies or they would eat, chew on bars of soap or things that I just, they didn't make any sense from the DSM lens. What I was being told there was that they were masochistic and they were borderline. And it was like they were 
really held with contempt. And that was just wrong. They were not that, understood at all. That hurt me yeah. deeply and it enraged me and it still does. And that's really the source of my book. And then what happened was I, I went on a journey trying to figure this out. And to my delight, when Steve Porges read my book, he got the journey. He understood what I was doing by trying to figure out what exactly was going on in the body. So we could see it, and Judith Herman described it as a jolt, that trauma survivors need a jolt in the body that brings relief. And then we see with Bessel van der Kolk's work, you know, the ways in which um, in the studies with people that were coming back from war, Vietnam vets and whatever, that the body was releasing these endogenous opioids when they were exposed to trauma. So here we begin to see the adaptive qualities, right? Yeah. The ways in which these behaviors help you. And the, the problem was that through the DSM lens, we were only seeing the ways that the behaviors hurt you. We didn't have the whole picture, but when you actually really listen without all of the um, prescribed ways of understanding behavior, just listen. Then I heard the help. And so over the years, um, I then adopted, a, uh, integrated the uh, interpersonal neurobiology model, which helped to really explain the states of chaos and rigidity, the sympathetic place and the dorsal place. And then when I read uh, polyvagal theory back in, forget when I first saw Steve uh, Porges present, I think it was in 2012. And I started to think about, wow. So this has to do with our autonomic nervous system and the way that this dorsal branch, this numbing place, is facilitated right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. through these addictive behaviors and then it shifts the whole lens in both a, a kind of neurophysiological framework with neuroception and also through Jenlin's work with the felt sense in terms of the felt shift in the body which i really believe is a shift in neurophysiological states yeah 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 so uh, what you're describing is that you were able early on to actually observe what was happening, including paying attention to the somatic part yeah. of it, which was very clear. Yeah. Um, and um, it was a journey, first through the feminist therapists, then mm -hmm. through trauma and um, uh, the interpersonal neurobiology, and finally with a polyvagal theory to actually yeah. find a framework that made sense of yeah. what was happening. And instead of finding superimposed explanations that didn't explain anything, find something that actually describes the experience in a way that makes sense. Uh, yes. Yeah. And that really honors people without judgment. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the terrible thing that, that really has happened in the psychiatric system, it's misogyny. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just a terrible thing that has, that has occurred. And it, it's not just, I think, uh, for, for women, but I think everybody 
it, it, when we get too bogged down in a framework, then we, we start to really, really miss what's actually going on for people. And it's a framework, the DSM, that's very cognitively based. People don't look at their clients' bodies enough, right? Yeah. But I just feel surge more and more and more that it's like the body is, it tells you the story. Even, even if it's a trauma body that's in dorsal and, you know, it's stuck in a way, it's telling you a story. Yeah. Telling you it needs, it needs help. It needs to shift and it needs the help of cognition in a sense. Mm-hmm. Of the part of us in the prefrontal cortex that can kind of say, wait a minute, <laughs> I'm stuck, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and um, you already had an orientation to pay attention to the body in an experiential way. Uh, as a focusing-oriented therapist, you mentioned Jendlin, who put focusing on the map. So do you want to talk about how... Uh, you integrated uh, an experiential felt sense oriented approach mm-hmm. with the polyvagal theory. Mm-hmm. So way back then when I was searching to try to figure this out, I ended up in a conference in Toronto, a no more secrets conference that was amazing. It was an amazing time. Um, and we were all excited and trying to figure these things out in terms of trauma. And um, I, I was referred to somebody that was doing some some trainings in um, multiple personality work. So I ended up there and then I ended up, so I, and I thought, I've got to find something that taps into these women's bodies because that's what they're really talking to me about. And that's what I see in what's happening for them. It was very somatic. And so I ended up doing a training and getting introduced to Mary Armstrong, who was one of the first trainers in focusing in Toronto, a student of Gendlin's. And that really helped me to understand, ah, there's this way into the body. Yeah. And there's this natural process that the body, you know, Gendlin in his research discovered that people that did well in therapy surprise, surprise, were people who were actually living in their bodies. (laughs) Imagine that, Serge. And so so that's how I I brought the felt sense into that. And And that was a long time ago. That was that's Mm. something that's at the beginning of your career. Yeah, it was in the the 1980s. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I started a bit earlier than that. But hard to imagine but but it's wonderful <laughs> to have that kind of experience because there's mm-hmm. nothing like it right yeah now we you know we can we can work with someone and we can see their body and we have this kind of sense of like what bodies look like when they're in these different neurophysiological states yeah and yeah. so that uh, is a very experiential approach focusing so it's staying close moment by moment close to the client's experience from the client's point of view, as opposed to from a cognitive uh, perspective where you try to force a model into the experience. Yes. I mean, you know, like Jendlin would say, and I love this. I mean, we, we love all of those different theoretical 
models, they're great, right? The, the key is to have them beside you, not in front of you blocking your client. Have them beside you. And then you're there in this beautiful moment-by-moment -moment experience that you talk about so much. And then something comes from one of those models and you think, hmm, <laughs> and <laughs> offer it up, right? Offer it up. Yeah. But the body knows. Their body knows. And my body, our bodies are co-regulating with their bodies in that, in that relationship. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. So experientially you had the experience of co-regulating without necessarily having the word and the concept there. The way that I talk about that is I call it the relational felt sense. Mm -hmm. So I have a felt sense of you and then you have a felt sense of me and together in the middle, we have this relational felt sense experience. And that, that one of the, joys for me in reading Porges and really getting into Steve's work was drawing these kind of similarities, these ways that, that the work crosses so that relational felt sense crosses with co-regulation, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah. by crossing, you mean that there is a bridge between them. These are not separate worlds. They may have different perspectives, but they map realities that can actually interconnect. Yes, Jendlin talked about crossing as not, not um, putting everything into the same thing and reducing it. Uh, Dan Siegel talks about this too. It's not like a, you know, a milkshake, you blend everything up and then it's reduced to one thing. It's, um, it's you look at each of these different things. So here's co-regulation and here's the relational felt sense. And you look at them from the other perspective and something more comes. Yeah. 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 Which is very different, right? Yeah. 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 So yeah. what I did was to build a model that is based on these two processes of neuroception from Porges work and interoception of felt sense practice awareness in the body. And I believe these processes are just natural processes in the body. They're just how bodies work. And so I built a framework from that that incorporates other models like, like interpersonal neurobiology a lot and um, um, working with parts that we, you know, is now called inner family systems, but we worked with this with parts many, many years ago as well. It's changed a bit, but that idea. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And from a feminist um, and trauma-informed place, but it's a framework that you can, you can take and um, bring all of these different kinds of ways of working into it. Mm -hmm, and I really mm -hmm. like that because then it really gives you an integrated model. You can use the different theoretical frameworks, but you don't, have, you don't get bogged down in one and then everything has to fit into that. Because then you've, you've lost the opportunity to really listen. Right, right. Freshly to what each person is telling you about what's happening for them. Yeah, yeah. So what you, you pointed out is that crossing of different approaches is not a way to reduce it to the least common denominator, but actually to broaden it so that mm -hmm. you have actually more at your disposal um, when you are in connection with the client. And the model you created gives you and the client a roadmap 
So you yeah. share this model with the client. So both you and the client have a sense of where it's at. Yes, and I actually, because I'm a very visual person, I created these models visually. Mm-hmm. So there, uh, I was really pleased that Routledge published them in color in my book. Um, and they're very, um, they're very, I think, user-friendly. And they're a way of understanding um, where you are in your nervous system and also in your felt sense experience. Maybe uh, you can give an example to see how you would uh, help a client see where they're at based yeah. on this model. Yeah, great. So in the, in the model, we have it, we work with it in front of us. Mm -hmm. And I made two, I made a client version that's simple. And I made a clinician version that includes this kind of layering of different um, approaches. So the client model, my clients helped me to make it. And we made it really simple. And the top half of the model is basically the sympathetic branch of the nervous system and then the dorsal branch. And in the middle is this intertwining or blended state, which I call the state of addiction. Okay, it's actually freeze. So freeze is here, it's sympathetic and dorsal. It's not dorsal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's the top half of the model, model is a circle. The bottom half of the model, at the bottom is the grounded safe space. It's the ventral branch. And then in there's two blended states there as well. The blended state here is what uh, Steve calls play. And on the other side, it's stillness. So that's a blending of dorsal immobilization and ventral safety. This is where our mindfulness practices are, our focusing practices, intimacy, all the wonderful things in life. And then on the other side of play is that place where you can hear kids having fun, you know, they're in ventral, they feel safe there, but they've got some sympathetic adrenaline going there. And then, and, and that's that place that, you know, feel it's just so delightful to hear kids on the street in that place. Mm -hmm, And so what we do say, I'm working. um, So at the bottom, um, literally with the grounding, uh, yes. is the uh, ventral vagal with a full range of ventral vagal, including yes. where it includes and overlaps with the sympathetic yes. play and uh, where it overlaps with the dorsal in stillness. Yes. Um, and so literally the grounding. Yes. And then above what happens and there uh, you include that notion of the place of freeze, which is literally being stuck in addiction. Yes, exactly. And I called this client one, the six Fs. So we, we made it, we made each state F, like the bottom ventral place we called flock, because here is social engagement. Mm-hmm. And then, so then when I'm working with someone struggling with addiction, I help them to really see how they're living in this top half of the model, the pathways in the nervous system that are states of defense. Mm -hmm. There's no social engagement up there. You're alone. Even if you have a group, you're still preoccupied 
with what it is that's helping you to survive. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and, so, and then pointing out that the bottom half is where you're really alive and connected mm -hmm. to people and where life is satisfying and nurturing. Yeah, yeah. So it shows both the stuckness, but also the possibility of something else. And yeah. that grounding, that connection, so that isolation, stuckness versus connection, in a way that people can start to differentiate. Yes, uh, they don't, sometimes they they don't even know, right? Yeah. You don't know that that's where you are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love, like, I, I just love maps. And then you can start to point out the pathways. Right. And I have a big model in my office. Sometimes we even, you know, physically get up and, and, and make the, the pathway with our hands, for example, to move through the pathway. So it's like, where, where were you today in this session? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, oh, mm -hmm. I started off over here in this really ball of chaotic, sympathetic place. And then I was able to, you know, travel down to the ventral through the place of flow, we call it in the six F's, mm -hmm. stillness place. And people then see how they get there. Yeah. It's not magic. You yeah. teach it to people. This is how you can do this. And so that's where the other part is uh, coming in handy. That's the very experiential part through the felt sense of um, uh, connecting the experience. It's not just a concept, but it's felt experience from inside. Yeah, it's in your body and we play it out. The other part that's really fascinating for me and really, I think, interesting in working with addiction is that, you know, in addiction, you get these shifts in the body that relieve you, right? Either down to dorsal or up to sympathetic and waking up, right? Mm -hmm. And they can feel in the body that, of course, they feel relieving. But they aren't, they don't carry us forward anywhere. They're still stuck in this place. And so I like to show clients how that is like an addictive shift in the body. It's a shift in neurophysiological state, but it doesn't bring life into, into your body. In the right. way that the, the felt shift that we talk about in focusing happens <clears throat> in the bottom half of the model. And those felt shifts bring, carry the body forward into a new way of understanding your life, mm -hmm. a new perspective. Right, right. So it's not just about noticing the energy, but being able to notice more than that, to notice the experience, to notice the quality of experience, uh, ungrounded versus grounded, and to be able to see over time with experience how the grounded experience brings you to a place of shift and the ungrounded experience does not. Yeah. Uh, and so that people become able to notice the difference and to uh, trust their perception in order to see where to go. Yeah, and all of that happens, of course, in the, what I call the safe enough nest, mm -hmm. the place, the relationship that we make together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're really, particularly in addiction, really, I think, actively coaxing, gently, 
but actively coaxing people to come yeah. out, to come back to life. Yeah. yeah. So on a practical level, um, how do you introduce both the model and the felt sensing to a new client who comes in, uh, is presumably aware of having addictive behavior? Uh, you know, how do you handle that uh, introducing them to the model and to the experiencing? Well, I, I, it depends on um, how connected I feel to them at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. If I feel, you know, once I feel that there's a, a little curiosity, you know, that, that, that they have a little bit of connection with me and a little bit of curiosity about another way of being or how I can help them. And then um, in terms of the body part, I look for, say, something in the body that is giving me some information. Like maybe they would um, tighten up in the throat a little bit when they're talking, um, or maybe tears, or maybe anger. And so I will use that in a very careful and gentle way, of course, not to point it out to shame people, but to say, I wonder if there's something going on there. Let's just pause, you know, this beautiful pause that you talk about, Serge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So very, very interesting there. Um, the, the question, in a way, could imply um, how, what do you do technically, what do you do strategically, And uh, what you're pointing out very nicely is that uh, since this is going to be about building connection from the very beginning, you're oriented toward building connection. And Mm -hmm. how do you sense the connection with the client? How do you um, uh, facilitate it? And uh, you're also describing how from that place, you also are sensing the quality of the connection. So paying attention to your own felt sense and tracking the client, but tracking the client from a perspective of building connection by figuring out where they are as a way of, um, um, you know, connecting with them better. Yes, because there's so much shame. Yeah. So also working uh, a lot from the very beginning around the framework of, uh, of how all of these things that you learn to do to survive helped you. Yeah. In the yeah. context within which they occurred, this is very polyvagal, right? Mm-hmm. In mm-hmm. the context in which they occurred and very feminist model, they helped you to survive. They were adaptive. So yeah. I say right from the front, I see ad- addictions as adaptive in the context in which you were in. And so we're going to explore that mm-hmm, in a mm-hmm. way that can really bring a sense of liberation for you. Right, right. Yeah. And yeah. boy, that's amazing when that happens. That's, um, that it really is a, it, it, sometimes it happens very quickly for people. They're like, what? <laughs> You're not going to shame me because I was cutting myself? No, my God. We understand more about how that helped you to survive. And then you do a a kind of piece of teaching. And then Mm -hmm. that brings you into the model because you're like, you were living over here. And in the client model, it looks like a ball of wool that's all, you know, yarn that's all chaotic. And then people will literally start to take that into their felt sense and say, I feel this chaotic, that red ball, it's in my chest. And boom, we start to build 
the pathway into the body mm -hmm, mm -hmm. through reception and through neuroception and then using the visual cue to help them understand well, this is what's going on here yeah 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 so so you're staying very connected to the experience pointing out the experience and mm -hmm. so then the roadmap starts making sense yes because it's happening moment by moment yeah. in connection with specific experiences yes and then you can really help people to begin to to stand beside their experience and notice what am i doing especially with addiction because you can have somebody come in and they're like way up there you know they've just been like really numbing like crazy and now some part of them brought them to therapy god knows what part that was and and you know you you can really get into a battle if you don't really notice okay well where are you right now let's pull out our model what's going on for you i can't feel you today george where are you and it starts to bring that capacity that you know to be able to be beside mm -hmm. what's happening yeah 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 and so um there's also that part of therapists you as a therapist saying i can't feel you so uh, you're very present. You're not an outside observer. You're in the connection, oh, in yeah. the relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much so. And helping the person to notice where they are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because that's key, right? Then you work on titrating and getting the right closeness and distance from the intensity or mm -hmm. from the numbing to be able to really find that ventral grounded place again. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there's um, an experiential training in recognizing where you are and learning the many ways in which you can come from there to that grounded place. Yes, yeah. So let's take a moment to see what else might need to be said to give people uh, to complete this brief introduction to your model? The one other thing I'd like to mention that I'm really excited about is that I created, I realized, okay, I've got this model now and it's a pretty, it's a generic model. You can bring in any kind of theoretical framework to it. What's the next step? The next step is how do you assess people? If you're not using this traditional DSM thing, how do we assess people? I was looking around, I couldn't find really much on real experiential assessment. So I made one <laughs> called EAT, the uh, Embodied Assessment and Treatment Tool. And I'm still working on refining it, but I do have the basics of it in the book. And it's, it's really essentially using, we start with using the model and orienting uh, to the model with uh, first with, uh, within our own selves and then how we work with it with our clients. And then I developed all these different kind of um, uh, ideas about, about components that we use at different times throughout the, uh, the therapeutic experience. So one of them, and these aren't all mine, they're like one of them is the trauma egg, which I really, I really like. And there's some um, Dan Siegel's Nine Domains of Integration. This is another one. The Experiencing Scale is another one, Jandlin's work. 
And in this experiential assessment, we, we develop it over time. So the traditional model is you fit the person into a diagnostic category, you take a history at the beginning. So then this poor traumatized person has to disclose you know, all the horrible things that happened to them so you can get your history. <laughs> just like, to me, it's just like Insane. crazy. Right. It's so non-empathic. It's so, it's dramatizing for people. So this way we go moment by moment and we have process recordings for each session. And it, it's a bit, it's a, it's a real paradigm shift. So it's hard for people to get, but once you get it, you get it. It's like, oh, I can choose which one of these um, practices or whatever that I want to use over time. And it doesn't all spill out at the beginning. It comes with when it's ready. When a person's ready to, to share, you honor the person's experience, right? Yeah, and then yeah. the beauty of it is that by the, by the time you're kind of through the first real part of the heavy work with the client, they have a whole toolbox that they take with them of experiences and ways of understanding themselves mm-hmm. so that they're mm-hmm. empowered. Mm-hmm. It's not mm-hmm. a mystery what we're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it also then, of course, helps you to be able to present in supervision. This is my client. This is where they are in the model. And these are the different components that I'm using right now to understand them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Did I, do you get that? Yeah. 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 Okay. No, yeah. I get, I get the sense of um, the assessment is not something that is separate like say taking a picture, a snapshot, but it's something that's integrated into the process. Uh, And uh, in the process of doing the assessment, the work is being done at the same time so that the client is developing, is not just getting information about where they're at, or you as a therapist are able to communicate with other therapists about where it's at, but there is also a process for the client to uh, get a better understanding of where they're at and what to do, um, yeah. you know, yeah. as part of doing this assessment. Exactly. So it's, 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 um, it's an experiential overtime assessment and it's mm-hmm. also a treatment tool. Yeah. 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 No, that's, so that's, that's been fun developing this uh, with yeah. a group of my, my students and trainers and really, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Good. Good, good. So is this a good place to, to end? Or? Yeah, it feels, feels good, yeah. Thank you so much. That was Thanks, really fun. always <laughs> fun to talk to you, Serge. This is part of the Active Pause podcast. To see more and subscribe to the newsletter, go to activepause.com.